on my own Instagram, which is Renee Rillo. If you go back to all my posts, you'll see all about it. Um, but Florian wanted me to talk about it. He wanted to um, have his life be an inspiration for others. And so I posted, you know, funny videos of him at the doctor appointment. And I mean, he just really tried to make the best of it. And that was really inspiring for people to see that here, somebody who was sick could still be funny and, you know, and, and living his best life the best he could. Hi again. Welcome to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, and some of my other titles in life include social worker, former therapist, widow, mother, and founder and CEO of Reimagining Grief. I'm on a mission, really, I'm trying to create a movement to change the narratives of grief. And this podcast is one of the paths I'm taking. So I'm so glad you're joining me. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Grief as a Sneaky Bitch on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss another episode. And while you're online, make sure you're following us at Reimagining Grief on whatever social media platform you prefer to get the latest behind the scenes news on the show and for some inspiring and informative daily invitations. In today's episode, I was joined by Renee Rouleau. She is a dynamic and inspiring woman who wears so many titles. She is a founder and CEO. She is an esthetician to so many celebrities. She is a globetrotter, adventurist, motorcyclist. And about one year ago, she added another title to that growing list. Widow. Renee shares the lessons she learned from her business partner and husband, Florian, over their 22-year relationship. She reflects honestly and openly about the myths and the realities of accompanying someone through a cancer diagnosis. And she lets us in on how she is blazing a shining trail as she adventures on, carrying Florian's memory forward into the future. I'm Renee Rouleau, and I live in Austin. I live on the east side. It's where all the cool kids are. Um, I've lived in Austin for almost four years. Um, I relocated my company from Dallas to Austin four years ago, so we're based here. My company is called Renee Rouleau Skincare. I am an esthetician by trade, but I developed a product line based on nine different skin types. So we have a really huge uh, e-commerce company, and we ship our products all over the world. So I am a busy girl, um, have a great team here in Austin, and our company is growing rapidly. And But we've been in business 23 years, but we can still continue to grow really well, and uh, I love what I do. That's all amazing stuff. And yes, shout out to Austin, mm-hmm. the place to be. Yes. I went here five years, so we're about same, nice. which practically makes us native Austinites exactly. in this town since we have 6,000 right. or some insane number <laughs> people moving here every day. Yes. So, well, thanks for taking time out of your very busy schedule, running your incredible company um, to talk with me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm really glad to have you here. Thank you. 
So I'd like to start our conversation today how I start all of my conversations, and that is asking you to explore with us what was your earliest memory of grief, whether it was your own grief experience or sort of observing and watching people in your family go through grief, what were the spiritual or practical resources people used to get through it, and what were the sort of messages you learned about grief that maybe served you or not when you faced your grief story that we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. So when I was in high school, I had my first love and we dated for two years. And about a year into our relationship, um, he had a really horrifying experience, which is one of his friends, he went to go, uh, they worked together, uh, they did landscaping, and he went to go pick up his friend one morning for work and walked into his friend's bedroom at his house and uh, discovered that his friend had taken a gun to his head and commit suicide. My my boyfriend couldn't process what he was seeing. Um, his brain just couldn't comprehend what he was seeing. And I was the first person he called. And he called me, you know, was crying. He's like, I don't know what I'm seeing. I, something terrible has happened. So I immediately went over to the house. But at the same time, we called the you know police as well. That was really traumatic for him. And and since he was my boyfriend, I was part of that journey with him. And he ended up getting um, some counseling for it. But yeah, just watching him not only lose a good friend, but also kind of being a witness to how it was done. For me, I was friends with this friend as well. You know, of course, went to the funeral and all of that. And I used to make these bracelets, kind of rope bracelets that I wore on my wrist. And this guy, Rob, um, always loved my bracelets and I had given him one of them. And so I would go to the cemetery about once a month and I would lay a, a bracelet down for him. And I think, I think I, what I really learned, and I would go, I mean, I probably went, you know, for a good year doing that. Yeah. Um, I think what I learned from that is our dead are not dead to us if you don't forget them. And this is up in the East Coast, so I certainly don't go anymore. But I think, you know, connecting with them and not forgetting them is really important. Yeah. I think what I also learned back then is, you don't really know what to say to somebody, right? And you also don't want to bring it up because you don't want to open up a can of worms if they don't want to talk about it. And so I think, you know, I also learned that people just don't talk about death because they don't know what to say, right? right? And again, you don't want to, sometimes it's better just to kind of like put, brush it away because again, you don't want to open up a whole can of worms with someone. So I think as much as I try to support him as best I could, a lot of times I just didn't bring it up because I didn't want to, you know, most people are just trying to forget about things and kind of move on with their life and and that sort of thing. And so certainly fast forward to, you know, my grief and all that, like I some when people say to me, like, you know, they'll they'll ask me a question and they're like, but if you don't want to talk about it, I'm so sorry or something. And so yeah. and I and I really have made a conscious effort to make sure that I talk about it because I I learned that grief is just not something you talk about. And I wanted to make sure that no one would ever offend me if they asked me a question or talked yeah. about it. Like it should be spoken about Absolutely. and and not hidden and just kind of like it's being the elephant in the room. So I think uh, that was one of the lessons that I learned back then. 
Because you weren't seeing that happen and you weren't experiencing that open comfort with talking about it. Yeah. And sort of fast forward, you realize there was maybe some ways in which that robbed you of your experience of grief and your connection sure. connection with each other. Yeah. So you alluded to a little bit the story about what has you coming on a guest for this show. I'd love for you to explore a little bit about your relationship with the person you lost and what that process was for you. And I want to remind you and our listeners that while my goal is for us to all become better equipped to talk about the hard things in life and to talk about grief and the realities of what each of our individual grief experience is, I also do not want to at the same time encourage the kind of voyeurism we often see um, sort of in our larger media, social media world. So this invitation is not an invitation for salacious details. It's really about how you want to help ground us in the conversation that we're going to have today. Mm-hmm. My husband died a year ago, so it's still kind of fresh. Um, his name was Florian, and he was French. And um, we were together for 22 years. We dated and lived together for 10 years and then married after 10 years. We're married for 12 years. Um, he was um, 11 years older than me. Yeah, 11 years older than me. Um, he has two children from a previous marriage who I um, have was very close with because I, you know, grew up with them. And uh, my stepdaughter was one when I met her and my stepson was 10 we never had children together, um, but I loved being a stepmom because I also had a company, and you know that took a lot of my time as well. But yeah, he was uh, very passionate about a lot of things. He had a lot of hobbies. He was very spicy in a fun way. <laughs> he was, um, you know, sometimes had a short fuse, but then could be super funny. He was kind of my own Robin Williams. He kind of looked like Robin Williams and kind of zany and crazy like that at times as well. But then at times he could just be very stoic and strong and a man of few words, but then he could just be a comedian. And so he was, (laughs) I always said about Florian, you know, he's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And that's what made it so exciting because his personality was really varied. And, um, you know, one minute he could be zero to a hundred. And then the next minute he's the soft place to fall, sewing a button on my jacket. Cause you know, he just kind of could do everything, but he just was, you know, kind of a master of all. And, um, just life was always so interesting with him. We always called him, the most interesting man in the world. And uh, he just was not predictable. You know, you just, yeah. it was, but that made never really, boring. Yeah, never, never <laughs> boring. That is for sure. But yeah, I had a real zest for life. Always had his fingers in a million things and was always learning and growing as an individual. And um, yeah, he was just, it was always an adventurer, you know, an adventure with him. And, you know, you kind of buckle up and hang on for the ride. And, uh, but it was amazing, so fun. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think I understood he's also partner or was in business. Cor- you guys also work together in, in, Correct. in addition to sort of playing together and being in life together. Yeah. Um, so for the first 10 years of my company, he was not involved, but he was kind of behind the scenes as any spouse is. Um, or in this in this case, it was partner. We weren't married for the first 10 years. But um, 
then somebody had said I needed a kind of an operations person person in my company and he was going to be the perfect person for it. But somebody said to me once, they gave me the advice, business isn't romantic. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And so I really kind of put it off and I was like, yeah, you know, we shouldn't work together. But then I changed my mind and, and decided to try it and it ended up being the best thing ever because it's like, you know, you're truly partners when you really are working together and, and playing together. And so we got actually so much closer because we he understood my world, you know, better. So he was our COO for 12 years. He was the yin to my yang. And uh, we had a beautiful relation, working relationship. We managed to kind of work through a lot of the differences. And the reality was he's very different than me um, and personality-wise, but also skill set-wise. So he let me you know, do shine where you do. needed to yeah. shine. And, and then yeah. he took care of the other things. And um, it just worked out really well. And I think because we are opposites, that's what made it work really well. Um, I think also a lot of it is making sure you respect that somebody is different and they think differently. You know, that's the challenge sometimes of being an opposite is you're like, oh, why does he do this? But it's like, because he's different. And yeah. that's amazing. Um, and we complement each other in that yeah, way. For yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it's it's so funny because we'd be in like operations meetings with our um, operations director and, you know, we'd be in meetings and me and Florian would just be like going at it, like arguing about something and just like we'd have these really heated debates about decisions and then we'd come to what whatever compromise or whatever we're going to do and then at the end of the meeting when it ended I'll be like, oh honey, um, I'm going to go pick up something for lunch. Do you want anything? You know, give him a hug or something and, <laughs> and one of our employees is just like, whoa. whoa. Like he just was always sh- so shocked that like we could just really turn it on and off turn, in that way yeah yeah, yeah yeah and like you know he'd be sitting in these meetings and just cringing because we'd be just like at each other and then just like just turn it off I'm like and I, I would say to him I'm like it's just business like it's no big deal you know we, we this is just this is what we need to do yeah like you yeah. gotta kind of battle it out and then come to a compromise and then you move on I just love how Renee revealed the ways in which they balanced each other out both in their marriage and in their business, about the lines she and Florian had to draw to not only sustain their relationship, but to make it thrive. Next, I asked her to share a bit about the day that changed everything for her, that led her to be with me in the studio, claiming a new title, one that we now share, Widow. I also reminded her, and I'll remind you, that one of my goals for this podcast and really for all my work at Reimagining Grief is to ensure we are all much more comfortable talking about the hard things in life. We also need to get better at holding space for someone when they do. You know, he was uh, perfectly healthy and uh, one day had a sharp pain in his stomach and about... um, 36 hours later, it had just become so unbearable that uh, we went to the emergency room at like 10 o'clock at night, and um, they were trying to figure out what it was, and the options were either cancer or some sort of food virus or some kind of something like that. So they had asked him to, you know, have have you traveled international recently that Mm -hmm. you could have picked something up, particularly India? And we had, and he hadn't, 
And of course, I'm, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm going, but he loves Indian food and he goes to Indian food restaurants all the time. Just Maybe it's just food poisoning. Yeah. yeah. And I was yeah. just hoping that, you know, I'm trying to find a reason for what it is. And the doctor said, no, 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 it wouldn't be from domestic Indian food. It would be, you know, so I was like, oh. And so, um, so about two or three days later is when they announced that it was cancer, but they couldn't really find exactly where it was. So he had to have some special testing because um, they saw where the tumors were, but they couldn't find where the source the was. Yeah. 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 So um, long story short, um, he was diagnosed with bile duct cancer. So at this point he was, well, let's see, he was 59. Bile duct cancer, which apparently only about 8,000 people get in the, in the U.S. a year. So it's really rare. Uh, it's a close cousin to pancreatic cancer okay. um, and has kind of the same fate of it. Um and they gave him six months to live. Well, the guy kind of danced around it, and, and the doctor, okay. and I think he probably wasn't, you know, of course, anybody, everyone's going to ask how long, right? Of course, of course. And, but Florian really leveled with him and said, you know, I really want to know. And, and so the doctor kind of said, well, Florian, you seem like kind of a matter of fact, no nonsense guy. And, and, and that was the case with Florian. So I think, you know, I mean, he says he respected his request. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and the I'm sure it's just kind of a crapshoot with these doctors. You know, they don't really know. Mm-hmm. And but interestingly enough, I mean, he died like three days shy of six months. Now, we did end up going to get a second opinion okay. um, from a hospital in Houston that has a doctor that specializes in that. People fly from all over the U.S. because of this cancer. And that doctor gave him a year, if not more, he said. Interesting. Okay. And it's interesting that we went to the specialist who kind of like really knows it versus the generalist. But the generalist was the one that got it right. Now, it. no disrespect to the specialist. No. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's all really just a, a guessing game. It's really a crapshoot and guess, yeah, guessing yeah. game anyways. Yeah. But it, it was just interesting that... You know, our local local yokel Austin guy, you know, yeah, wanted, got it right. Got it right. Yeah. And that was Florian's wish, and this was his diagnosis, to, to know the time mm-hmm. parameter. Did you have any hesitation about hearing the news, about even wanting that answer? Did you want it equally as much? And then how did you two sort of process that information yeah, in the beginning. I mean, we're planners. Okay, you both know? of you. Yeah. I mean, we have a company, so we're planners. You always have to be planning. And he also, you know, was in the military. So it's always about being prepared. And so he, you know, he knew he was going into war, fighting for his life, and he wanted to be prepared the best he could. Yeah. Um, I think two things come to mind after the diagnosis. One is we went that first weekend out to Malibu, and I said, let's just get to the beach. Let's just get to the water and just kind of clear our head and kind of talk through this. So we went to Malibu um, for the weekend. And then the second part of it is, you know, I'm trying to be the cheerleader and the optimist. And I was I was thinking about it like if somebody tells you, hey, Lisa, you have six months to live, what would you do? And you'd probably be like, oh, I'd travel the world. I'd jump out of airplanes, whatever. You know, yeah. it's almost like this just imaginary world. Yeah, where you're just going to like live life to the fullest. And in my mind, I was thinking like, let's do this. Like, let's just make the best of it. And I said to him, I said, let's make a, do- a new memory every day. And the memory was doing extraordinary things. And that's how I went into it. And Soon after, I realized, wait a minute, he's sick. Like, we can't be 
gallivanting all all over the world. Yeah. 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 And he needs to be tethered to chemotherapy and hospitals and he's not feeling good. And so all of a sudden I just, I didn't think about it like that. And I was like, yeah, this is not. Not, There's the sort like of fantasy that, that we right. see in Hollywood, by That's the way, right. which That's is right. like get on a jet and fly to right. you know, the Bahamas. I had the same discussion with my husband and we never basically made it out of the hospital, yeah. you know. Yeah. But I had that fantasy that we were just going to go check right. into a beach house and then one recommendation and one diagnosis and one surgery and mm. coma, you know, et cetera, et cetera later. But yeah, I think we're sort of confronted with this sort of vision, yeah. Hollywood-esque and, vision. Right. And I think it is Hollywood. I think it's just from movies and that's just kind of what you think. And even like, you know, when I think about it towards the end, you know, when people come in and say goodbye and it's all that, I mean, like that didn't play out like that either. And um, so that was sort of, you went from the sort of fantasy of the news and how you would respond to the news to the sort of reality very quickly, it sounds yeah, like. For sure. Yeah. And was there a point at which it sounds like the recommendation by the doctors was chemo and, mm-hmm. and intervention? Yes. Was there any ever a point along the way where you or Florian said, hmm, do we want to do this? Or were you immediately like, yep, let's do all the things? So we, um, you know, did a lot of research. We talked to a lot of people. There was a, a girl named Hillary that had bile duct cancer and actually is still living and surviving from it. So mm-hmm. she's really the rare exception because it really is just not one that people really survive. And she was super supportive, um, kind of guiding us through it. I mean, we really needed somebody that had been there because, you know, when, when we announced he had cancer, everybody's throwing out suggestions and it's oh, just Oh, man. Does everybody to, have opinions I and know, then some? Take this vitamin and I have this, you know, all this kind of stuff. And yeah. so we really needed to hone in on who really is the expert here. And we managed, I don't even, oh, I think I met her through a bile duct cancer support group on Facebook. I joined okay. it and then you'd post things and at least you were you know, among people who uh, were who know that type yeah. of cancer, yeah, right? Yeah. And and then we, there was a girl in Austin, and you know, ended up talking with her, and she's lived it, and so she knew about it. So we let her kind of guide the way. And one of the things that she said was, "You really have to be your own advocate." You know, like you kind of really have to do your own research and all of that. And so he, we waited for the specialist, and we knew it was like it was going to take like seven weeks to get an appointment, and we knew he didn't have that kind of time to give, but we decided to wait for the specialist anyway. Okay. Now, does that mean the cancer was growing, and maybe had we not, had we started chemo earlier? I mean, you just never know. You just but don't know. That's what we went with. And he started chemotherapy, had it done in Austin, so we didn't have to travel to Houston for it, but the... Um, he had a he had a sixty percent chance of it working, and unfortunately, he was the forty percent that it didn't work on. At that point, there was another type of chemotherapy because he was not he was not a candidate for surgery, um, which this girl Hillary was, and that's kind of what. Oh, so sometimes that's an option. Yes, okay. yes, yeah. but, but he was not uh, based on the location of the tumors. Um, but he. Uh, he chose not to do chemotherapy at that point. The second time around. Yeah. And interest- what was that conversation like? Was that a conversation between the two of you? Was that just sort of a statement by him? How did yeah, that? Yeah, probably more of a statement. You yeah. know, I think he felt defeated by the fact Round that the one. first, yeah, didn't work. Um, and I think at that point, you know, he was pretty miserable with the chemo. I mean, it's that wasn't a pleasant experience. And plus, the tumors were on his liver, and they send ammonia to the brain and um, affect the brain. And so there were side effects with that, which was some psychosis and some other things. So he just was not in a good frame of mind um, throughout a lot of it. Um, 
I think people forget that often who haven't been by the bedside or accompanied somebody in a going through treatment or going through a cancer diagnosis is that not just the physical effects, of course, of chemo or radiation or surgery, but also the sort of emotional and psychological changes, yeah. which can be their own, which can, as the caregiver or the caretaker, can cause its own trauma. Yeah, for you know, sure. To be a part of. I think what people, you know, people said, oh, you're lucky you had advance notice of his death. And to be real here, there were times that I said, him him dying of a heart attack instantly would have been way easier than this because you're watching somebody that you love dying and you can't do anything about it. And it's so painful. And again, some of the side effects with the cancer he had, I mean, it was just excruciating to watch. And so sometimes just like, you know, the thought of just the Band-Aid being ripped off fast may have been easier. Now, fast forward, now that I've been through it all, I wouldn't have changed anything. um, And I'm so grateful that we had that time. But it was not easy. I mean, it's not, again, it's not Hollywood. It's not just no. like, oh, we just sat and had all these long conversations and it was beautiful. And, and we rolled down the hallway on the IV pole and sang a song right. and, you know, yes. sort no, of skated down was, the hallway. No. You know, we, there were be- I mean, you had moments, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, we sure had beautiful moments. You know, he was not in a, a good place. Um, and then just also struggling in his mind with with his fate and his reality. Um, I think when I look back at the six months, the first two months was a blur because it was just kind of like trying to settle in and, you know, to the unknown and make a plan. Yeah. Make a plan. And how is this all going to play out? And we don't know. And you kind of just have to go with it. Then chemo started. And so then that was its own set of misery. Um, I would say the best time was probably the last like two months, because at that point, once he decided to refuse treatment and the chemo and all the chemicals got out of a system. And then by that time, they were managing the pain really well with a um, fentanyl patch. Okay. And that worked really well for him. So the last two months were really the best. It was when he was in the best spirits. He was um, receiving palliative care, really, at yeah, that point. Yeah. yeah. And he had surrendered to, in his mind, to you know, he just accepted it and was like, okay, this is what it's going to be. And, and he, I mean, he still, you know, there were still some some of the psychosis that went on. But um, but for the most part, it was – and he was not tethered to needles. So we actually traveled back to France to visit his family, and mm-hmm. he was able to um, race a car that he wanted to, and that was one of his dying wishes. And so so there were really some beautiful moments. And, you know, but again, it, it was interesting that it came kind of closer to the end. And, I, and a nice thing – or and I, I don't know if that's the right word, but with his type of cancer, and they had told us this from the beginning, that – it wasn't a slow demise. He would be good, 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 maybe get a little worse, good, 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 good. But it, it wouldn't be until the very end that things got bad. So really, the worst of it was like the last eight days. And, te- and technically, that was when he started to have liver, liver failure. So okay. literally um, two and a half weeks before he passed away, we went to Formula One, which is the the race here in Austin, and we went to Formula One, and I had post pictures about it on Instagram, and you know, he looked, living life, he, he looked celebrating, great. he looked yeah. great. And then when people were like, two and a half weeks later, he fell, you know, he passed away. People were like, wait, I just you saw, just, yeah, and he looked, you know, he looked great, and and but that was the nature of the cancer. Once it hit, once we knew, but I'm grateful that up until kind of those last eight days, I mean, he was functioning. In our conversation, Renee reminded me that she wasn't just facing the loss of her husband, 
a man she had shared her life with for the past 22 years. She was also losing her business partner. So I asked her to reflect on the experience of planning with Florian, both personally and professionally, for how things would be after he passed away. So um, I'll start with the reflection, which is after he passed away, me and his children went to go meet with our attorney, who me and Florian had met with many times going through this to get everything kind of settled up. And we went to the attorney's office and the attorney started by sharing something with his children. And he said, I want to let you know that I've been doing estate planning for 25 years. So all day long, I'm around death, dying, planning, you know, people being diagnosed with things. He's seen it all. He's seen it all and heard it all. And he said, I want to let you know about your father. Um, He said, very few people are as focused on everyone else rather than himself. Your father was selfless. He said, I've just very rarely come across, you know, somebody that can remove themselves from their own whatever their own battle is going through and way more focused on taking care of everyone else. And, and it wasn't just a, even a financial thing, but he just, the thoughtful know, way he prepared. Yes. Yeah. And it, it was true. Like he, you know, one of the things he did was three months into it, he comes home one day and he said, come outside. And I went outside and he had a car for me, an SUV, kind of a used SUV, a Toyota FJ Cruiser. And he said, and so this was like, maybe September, the following August, um, was my 50th birthday. So a little over a year later. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm not going to be here for your 50th birthday. He said, happy early birthday. Mm -hmm. Take this on your adventures, go on road trips, go have a good time. And I mean, this is somebody that has three months to live and is dealing with his own things in his own head, but somehow he's thinking of me and that he won't be there for my birthday a year later. And this is a way for him to sort of be present. Yeah. I mean, I could go on with a million stories like that of just the selfless acts that he did. Um, but he, I mean, just unbelievable like the way he was thinking about everybody else and more concerned about everyone else than himself. But that was the soldier in him. You know, he was in the military. It's always taking about taking care of your people. Absolutely. Yeah. And so he applied that you know, in his own journey with his, with his death. And it was just unbelievable to see. And then the fact that the attorney, you know, validated that he just said, I just don't see it like this. This is very rare. That is beautiful. And, and to your point that the attorney would sort of take that effort to share that with you and with which the kids, which is, beautiful. which is beautiful. I can only imagine they received that news yeah. very heartfelt and yeah. yeah, 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 no, they loved hearing that. You also had this compounded issue in terms of planning, given that you guys were given this news that your business partner is also not going to be there. Business is probably in many ways the last thing on your mind in this journey, although since you run your own company, it can't totally be. Right. No. How how was that business planning piece? Yeah, it was was tough because on one hand – him and I did so much with the company and, you know, we were just, we worked all the time. I worked seven days a week. He did for the most part. And, and all of a sudden, like now your focus has to shift, but at the same time, like you can't just one day just kind of like stop. Let your company go. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
So that was hard because there were times that, you know, I really struggle with like, hey, I'm still on deadline and I still have a lot of commitments to work, but here I'm supposed to be spending time with him and be a caregiver and that. So there we had conversations about it, but he very much, you know, wanted me to work and he knew that, you know, he, he wanted to die knowing that like I still had the company to fall back on. And, um, you know, luckily having been in business for as long as we had, like nothing was going to change that much, right? It wasn't right. like it was you a startup. You had a team with and, yeah, underneath you all and yeah. supporting you. And um, learning to, you know, really lean on the team more, which was really a blessing because a lot of times when you own your own company, you tend to micromanage a little bit. You tend to kind of do everyone else's job and not kind of empower them to do things. Yeah. And so this was really the springboard for me even now to learning to let go and and really trust people to do the job you hired them for. Yeah, so I yeah. think, you know, there were so many gifts that came out of Florian's passing, and this is certainly one of them. He very much wanted to die knowing that his wife would be taken care of, you know, and the company would go on and his children were going to be okay. And, you know, again, he was looking out for everybody else. And so he... Um, he wanted me to start looking for his replacement, the COO, and he wanted to meet him and because he wanted to die knowing that, like, we were all set. So I started the search um, probably like two months in or something like that and really taking my time. Um, ended up narrowing it down to a few candidates, then finally um, found one that was really the best candidate, flew him down to Austin. Uh, from Dallas, um, Florian met him. You know, they really connected, really liked him, uh, or really liked each other. And so I made him an offer uh, shortly after. And in my mind, I was like, okay, this is going to be perfect because, you know, as soon as Florian passes, you know, passes away, then I have an operations expert that can come right in and kind of pick up where he left off. You don't have to have this new burden that you, you know, this new burden to, well, to yeah, do well, that and, work yourself. And the reality is. I've been kind of out of the operation side for a long time. And so I didn't trust myself to be making those decisions because I don't really know how Florian made the decisions he did. And I mean, we were in, I was in lots of meetings, but like... It's not the same as being yeah, overseeing it all. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I really needed somebody that had operations um, expertise. And so, so I made him the offer. And this was probably maybe three weeks before Florian died. And then about a week later, he called me. So again, this is about two weeks before Florian died. Um, and he decided not to accept the offer. And it was because his wife decided she didn't want to up and, you know, move with the children and put them in a new school system. So, and I certainly understood. Um, but that was really hard because here I had found the perfect person. Florian had met him, you know. You were got only his able blessing. to relax and yes, not have to right, worry about that right. piece. And yeah. all of a sudden, now all of a sudden I'm losing my husband. I don't have somebody as a backup plan. And it was, uh, for me, really, um, really, really scary. What I ended up doing was just kind of pulling myself up by the bootstraps and said, Renee, let me just um, run the company myself. And I, you know, certainly ran it for years without Florian being there. Granted, our company's so much bigger now, but I just had to muster up the strength to say, we're going to be okay. I can run this company. We'll figure it out. And yeah. And so I just said, I need to grieve and I can't be in a rush to hurry up and go find someone else. So I'm just going to, you know, stand in front of my team and just let them know, you know, I got you, like we've got this. And uh, I needed to assure them that everything was going to be okay. And, uh, you know, because this was a real crisis in the company. And um, so then probably 
close to two months afterward, I then started the search again and then um, and then found the perfect person. And he's been with me for nine months now and he's okay. been amazing. And um, so, yeah, so, it, it, you know, it all worked out in that way. But it was... Well, it's an extra layer of your own grief journey to have to sort of tackle those operations and business issues on top of your own grief journey. Sure. During that, you mentioned something which actually... I think you know because you know Jay Kim of Chalantra Barbecue mm-hmm. was on our show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, a few months ago. And he talked about, because his sister was dying over the course of really 10 years, about having, even though he was the owner and founder of his company, having to learn to relinquish a little bit and come control and to trust his team sure. to do things so that he could be really present when he needed to be. Yeah by his sister's side. And he says that's really transformed the way he still runs his company mm-hmm. today. You know, I think he's opening yet another uh, restaurant soon. Have you noticed a sort of more permanent shift in the way you relate to your team, having had your team had to sort of support you through that time? Oh, 100 percent. Oh, 100 yeah. percent. Yeah, I really, you know, to this day have, have let go of a lot of things that I never picked back up again because – they could do it. They could do it better than I could, and uh, and it just made sense. So it was, it was um, really a gift to um, for all of that ha- to happen because now I'm a better leader in the company, and our company is thriving even better because it's really, you know, you hire people for their expertise, and you yeah. need to get out of their way and let them do their job. Yeah, you know, you hear about that all the time when you hear you know, great interviews with great uh, leaders in the entrepreneurial space. But I think so few leaders are actually able to grasp that. And the ones that do, I often sort of read their backstories. And it's often because they've experienced something like what you've just shared, where something really rocked their foundation and they had to take a leap and lean on their team, you know, to do that. Yeah, for sure. I am so grateful to Renee and to all my guests on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch for joining me in my mission, really in this movement, to change the narratives of grief. Honestly, these are the kinds of conversations I wish I would have heard in the early days of my own grief journey. In fact, a listener recently shared a similar sentiment when she wrote this note to me. She said, Today, I listened to the Naming the Loss episode. Please thank your guest for sharing her story. I was really struggling today. I found you and her story and have turned a corner in a really hopeful way. Thank you for what you are doing. Today, you made a powerful difference in my life with appreciation beyond words. Thank you, Linda, for letting me know. If you've been moved by one or more of these episodes like she was, I'd like to ask you to do me a favor. Head over to Apple Podcast and leave a rating and write a review. And while you're there, perhaps you can share this series with the people in your lives too. Next, I explored a common theme I hear from people early in their grief journey. I think this is especially true among entrepreneurial-minded people like Renee. In fact, you might remember my guest Jay Kim, founder and CEO of Chilantro Barbecue, in the episode Life Lessons from a Little Sister, shared a similar worry. 
And that is the notion that we should always be looking forward, that to be a success in business and in life, you should be thinking about what's next, about how I grow, about where I can take things. So I asked Renee if she was tripped up in the beginning, figuring out how to honor Florian's memory, to find a way to carry him forward that didn't leave her feeling like she was stuck in the past. Well, first of all, I used um, social media, almost like a diary in a journal. Yeah. Um, to talk about it. So on my own Instagram, which is Renee Rallo, if you go back to all my posts, you'll see all about it. Um, but Florian wanted me to talk about it. He wanted to um, have his life be an inspiration for others. And so I posted, you know, funny videos of him at the doctor appointment. <laughs> and I mean, he just really tried to make the best of it. And that was really inspiring for people to see that here somebody who was sick could still be funny and, you know, and, and living his best life the best he could. I made the decision, a conscious decision, um, to use social media for good. And social media, certainly, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors around it. And I was grieving and knowing that people just don't talk about grief, yet everybody experiences it at some point or another. I kind of just laid it out there and, excuse me, and the response was really welcomed. Mm. Um, so I would have on Instagram stories, I'd be crying and just kind of, hey, having a hard night. And this is what grief looks like. This is the reality. Yeah. No sugarcoating. No sugarcoating. Yeah. Um, but I very much, I surrendered to the fact that quickly that I couldn't I couldn't control the process. So because I'm a planner, I remember saying, okay, if I can just make it through week one, I'll get through week two. If I can just make it through week two, I'll get to week three and it will be better. And I kind of just assumed that every day would get better. And that it was going to be this linear trajectory right. that that's went right. up. Right. That's the way it works. Because that's what we're taught. Yes. And yeah. so at week five, all of a sudden it was as bad as week two. And I went, oh my God, like what's wrong? And and this isn't the deal I signed that's, up for. That's right. Yeah. This is not how it's supposed to work. And I remember a, a friend of mine that worked out at my gym, his, he had lost his mother. And I said, how long do you think it took you to kind of like, quote unquote, get over it? And he said, oh, probably about two years. And I remember thinking, two years? Who has time for that? That won't be me. And it's like, you mm. know, I'm a year in and I can see it. I'm, I'm now like, wow, yes. And but I think um, so I learned to kind of just throw out putting a timeline to it. I'm like, you know what, Renee? You know, they always talk about grief comes in waves. And mm -hmm. when it hits you, you buckle up for the ride. It's going to you're going to be pummeled to the ground. And I learned to really feel the feelings. I thought of myself as like being in a bath and just whatever feeling I was feeling. Just, Wash over you. Yeah. Just immerse in it. Feel it. Cry. Just feel all the pain. But realize that it's just an emotion and it will lighten at some point. And. I've always been, I grew up in a family, you know, and grandparents as well. Everybody kind of had the suck it up buttercup attitude. Yeah. And, you know, my family's really tough and tough mentality. And so I just, that's my nature to just suck it up. And Move on. Yeah. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. And, um, but I really said, if I don't feel these feelings, it's going to come back at some point and, and haunt me. And... Mm -hmm. 
I just said, I'm just going to feel what I feel and just it's going to take as long as it needs to. And I'm just surrendering and just accepting of what what will be and what I don't have control of and what I have no idea what tomorrow will bring, you know, just just go with it. And that's a beautiful lesson, I think, for all of us. It's just like you just have to flow and go with the journey and just and adjust as needed and let go of the illusion of control. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I am such a changed person now because of it. I mean, I I'm so much less controlling. Um, and I just learned to surrender and just accept the unknown. And I think that's been really a saving grace for me. Um, certainly in the aftermath as well. Um, I think, um, one of the things, and again, sharing on social media and being really vulnerable there, but one of the things, you know, it's my nature to always be optimistic and find the good out of anything. That's just, Mm -hmm. that's just how I'm wired and and through conversations with Florian, I wanted to make sure that I, you know, carried on his legacy because, again, our dead aren't dead to us until we forget them. So how do I kind of keep him going and, and make an impact? And so I've, first of all, um, shortly after he was diagnosed, I met a girl here in Austin. She has a company called Eternova, and they make ashes into diamonds. Mm. And... I went home one day after meeting this girl and told Florian about it. And he immediately said, that's how I want to come back. Mm. And he said, I want to be made into a diamond. Diamonds are forever. They shine bright. And he said, take me on your adventures with you. And so Adele, who owns uh, or is the co-founder of uh, Eternova, she came to our house, sat down with Florian and me and his children and did a pr- presentation on how the diamonds work and, you know, the process and this beautiful presentation. Well, apparently um, it was a beautiful experience for her because this is the first time that she's ever had to sit down with someone while they were still living. Yeah. Normally people say, oh, you know, I have my grandmother's ashes from 10 years ago because you can make it at right. any point. Right. And so that was a real learning and growing experience for her where she had to, you know, be part of that. And it was really beautiful. It's beautiful. And uh, so we got the diamonds back. It takes about eight months. We got the diamonds back. And that was an emotional experience. I posted a video of it on my Instagram grid so people can see it there when she came to my house and I saw the diamond for the first time. Um, I'm working with a local jeweler here in Austin, Fail Jewelry, and she's making it into a a necklace for me. And I'm going to get it in time for Christmas. And I told her to gift wrap it for me. And that will be my Christmas gift to myself. So I'll be able to... And a Christmas gift from Florian. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And uh, so I'll get that back on on Christmas. And that's going to be really nice. So that's such a beautiful story. And you've got me so inspired. Now I'm thinking about how I might want to carry Eric yeah. forward as well. So I, that's almost a that's a that's a physical literal way right. that you were carrying Florian forward. Well, and I also, you know, I had the diamond for quite some time before I found the right jeweler that I wanted to work with and so I've taken his diamond with me everywhere. And in fact, 
Um, I went to uh, two weeks ago. I actually went and picked up the diamond from the jeweler because she had it because she's working on it. And I said, can I borrow it? And I went away for the weekend and went to the Cowboys, uh, Chicago Bears game. And Florian was a huge Cowboys fan. Okay. And Troy Aikman, who's one of my facial clients, who used to be the quarterback of the Cowboys, he gave me media passes to go onto the field. And then also I got to go up to the announcer's booth. And Florian was Huge Cowboys fan, big Troy This would have been fan. like dream come true. Yes, yes. So yeah. I was able to bring the diamond with me out on the field, go up to the announcer's box, and and I just really wanted Florian there with me for that. So then as soon as I got back, I gave her the diamond back. So, um, um, But yeah, I went to Spain. Um, this was kind of an interesting thing. People, when he died, they said, Renee, talk to him. He's there with you. Talk to him. But I... It was way too emotional to ever talk to him. So I, I, I literally couldn't say a word to him, even laying in bed at night. Like, I just couldn't talk to him. I couldn't do it. So a friend of mine told me about the Camino de Santiago trek in, in, um, in, no, in Spain. And so it's like a spiritual pilgrimage that's been around for 1,200 years or something. And she thought it would be really good for me to go on it. And so she asked me if I wanted to go with her. And then there was a whole group that went. But anyway, so I signed up for that many months uh, prior to that. So I would think I went there in September or October. I can't remember. I think September. And um, and so I emotionally planned that that trek would be the time I would speak to him. So I thought that that would be um, really therapeutic to do that. So I walked 110 miles over the course of seven days, um, most of it alone um, instead of with a group. And I used that as an opportunity to speak and connect with him. I brought, I still had some of his ashes. So I brought his ashes and sprinkled them um, along the way. I brought uh, his diamond with me, of course. And um, I also had a Sharpie with me. And so I would write on different rocks and leave them along the path and write little notes to him and and things like that. And so that was a, a really beautiful journey to feel like we were walking together and I was able to connect with him in a way that I had not been able to before. I was able to talk about him. I just had never been able to talk to him. Mm-hmm. So that was really um, therapeutic. And um, and I've and then he was a, as a hobby, he was an off-road um, car racer, like dirt racing in Baja, mm-hmm. Mexico. And so um, his... Uh, one of his dying wishes was to donate his car, which was like a famous off-road car. It had been around for 30 years. He was the third owner. But he donated it to um, the National Off-Road Museum. And so uh, about a month ago, I went to Las Vegas because they had their off-road museum or off-road ceremony, awards ceremony, and they did a special tribute to him. And then the next day, I went to the museum and they inducted his car into the Hall Mm -hmm. of Fame. And so I sprinkled his ashes right in the passenger seat. And so, um, so yeah, so there's our, you know, little ways that I'm kind of carrying him around and carrying his legacy. And um, I just very much um, include him in my adventures because he said, take me on your adventures with you. So I have a million other stories of things I've done this past year that have included him. And, and, um, and I think what I really learned about grief is that I guess probably what allowed me to kind of move, move forward, um, or move through this is it's really about celebrating. Right. And when you go into a, you know, so like, I remember somebody messaged me on Instagram once and, you know, sending her condolences and she said, life's not fair. And I, in my mind, I said, what do you mean life's not fair? Like, there's no guarantees for any of us. I mean, right? hundred there is one guarantee. A hundred percent of yes, us aren't going to make ex- it out alive. Exactly, yeah, right? Yeah. And I thought, 
I was with him for 22 years. He has two beautiful children. You know, he lived to 59. He had a great life. I mean, it's a beautiful story. And so I never had that feeling of life not life's not fair. And, you know, I just really got into the mindset of I'm not going to be victim to this um, because I have so much to be grateful for. And and um, and just really saw it as a celebration. How can I how can he not be forgotten? I don't want to forget him. I want to still keep talking about him. And, you know, and in doing that, you're celebrating life, his life and your life exactly. that you're still here to have these adventures exactly. and live this life, and, and which is what he wanted me to. Yeah. Right. I mean, he doesn't want me burying my head in the sand. I, I mean, mean, he got you that SUV for a reason. Exactly. Right, girl. He wants you yes. to go on adventures well, and take him with them. Exactly. And then that was another thing, too. We ride motorcycles together. And so we rode them for 15 years. And when uh, when he got sick, I just said, I don't think I can ride without you because I've only ridden with him. Um, yeah. I mean, I used to ride on the back of his motorcycle, and then he encouraged me to get my own license. So we rode together uh, on our on our own bikes. But I just said, I don't, you know, I was feeling sad. And I just said, yeah. I don't think I can do this. And he said, Renee, you know, you need to, like, go on adventures. You need to do this. And then he recommended a new bike. He recommended I sell my other bike and gave suggestions for a new bike. And I just had a new custom-built motorcycle made. And I went uh, two months ago to Northern California to an all-girls motorcycle camping weekend. Nice. Uh, brought his ashes and diamond with me. And just to be out on the open road. I mean, yeah, he's not by my side, but like... He's with you? Yeah, exactly. He's with me. The diamond's with me. And then I had on the motorcycle, you know, something painted on the side to honor him. I had one of his patches from his motorcycle jacket got sewn into the custom leather seat. And so, you know, again, I'm he's with me and I'm, I'm carrying on the adventures. And, and that's kind of what's helped me kind of push through this is yeah. like honoring him and celebrating him and and not slowing down because he was somebody that just was fast and fast paced in life and yeah. I I don't want to slow down either. Yeah. There was so much you shared there that was really resonated for me in my own grief journey. Mm -hmm. One of the things I appreciate you shared with us today that I want to sort of reinforce and that is I think we often think if we allow the sad emotions to come or you know the those kind of harder emotions that we're somehow stuck in a place. My experience is the more we can let those, all of the emotions wash over us, we are so much more equipped to be able to savor the joy and delight and amazement mm. about life. And in many ways, that is the gift of grief and loss. For sure. And for so many of us, I think we're so, we sort of, I picture it like, like we were grasping so tight that we don't want, you know, when those emotions come pounding at the door like a nasty, you know, visitor in the middle of the night, all right. the negative ones, and we sort of clench up and tense up and we try to keep them at bay. We think we can keep them at bay, but then still have access to joy and delight and amazement. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're experiencing on your journey, and I hope many of our listeners are experiencing too, is actually when you open the door, I say, and let that visitor in for a cup of coffee – and hear what it wants to tell right, you, right. and then send him along or his way mm -hmm. when you're done, mm -hmm. you actually get to have those other visitors in your life around yeah. that joy or delight. For sure, yeah. And amazement. Yeah, yeah. I, my kind of, uh, I went into 2019 with the attitude of, of I'm going to say yes more. And, um, you know, because the gift of someone's passing is realizing how precious time is. And it's all about, you know, I kind of reanalyzed everything in my life. Where is my time best spent? Who do I want to give energy to? What do I want to let go of? And uh, and just really using it as a springboard to really like resetting my life and making sure that everything was 
um, done with good intention. And but one of the things was just saying yes. And, you know, we all say no all the time, whether it's I mean, just no, out of fear know, of failure right, and laziness, priorities, laziness. I mean, just anything, right? Yeah. And no, you know, whatever. Next year. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Um, and I just say yes to so many things now. And just it's amazing the doors that I've opened with just saying yes. And I've also committed to anytime I feel fear about something, I'm just going to say yes and not give in to fear. So I don't know, three weeks ago, I rode a Porsche around the racetrack and you know, I mean, just <laughs> I was so scared, but it was like, yes, like bathe in this emotion. I'm, you know, super yeah. scared. This is super freaky, but it's amazing. I'm living and uh, I'm going to be learning off-road racing next year and just for fun. And I mean, just I'm just like, yes, yes, sure. Why not? <laughs> and uh, and then another thing a friend of mine turned me on to was. Um, this concept of the word both. So he said to me, yeah, when when you're given a, you know, when you're making a decision, you know, someone will say, oh, do you want to do this or you want to do this? Or you want, you want to get that one or you want to get that one? And in his attitude is both. both. Like why settle just for one or the other? Do both. And so that's been my theme also this year. It's just like, both. I mean, I go to a restaurant, I can't decide between two desserts. Guess what? I'm getting both of them. And, um, and just, you know, so I've used this kind of both mentality. And it's been, it's been great. That's fantastic. I think we're kindred spirits. Everybody who will know me from friends to former social work interns to colleagues to patients of mine know that I do not use the word but. I only use the word and. And, and so my expression has always been yes and. Yes, right. Um, I so I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate you saying yes when I reached out to you to ask you to be a guest yes. on this show. Yeah. It's been such a gift holding space for you and to being able Thank to you. hear your story and to feel Florian come into the room with us for this conversation. Any last words or anything you would want to share either for somebody who might be going through this journey early on themselves or mm -hmm. or someone who's accompanying a friend who's going through loss? Anything that you sort of would wish you would have known or would like to share with other people? Well, one thing I would say is music saved me. Mm. So I have music on a lot. Um, especially in a quiet house, you know, the house felt so quiet yes. and that's sad and not, again, I want to bathe in my emotions, but music has been really therapeutic. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can't help but smile when there's a song you love or whatever. So, um, you know, just listen to music because yeah. that's, it just can really like make your, make your heart sing at sort times. Sort of soul affirming. Yeah. yeah. So music is really good. But then of course, you know, you hear a sad Trigger song. Trigger song. And <laughs> just like, ah. But again, bathe in the feelings. Um, I think just trying to have an attitude of celebration. What are the things that you can do to, um, to celebrate and honor them so they're not forgotten. Um, share their stories. You know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't share something about Florian, and I intentionally do so. And, um, you know, can you go plant a tree? Can you go do some volunteer work at something that you know would be meaningful to them? And, and I think it's, it's really about carrying forward their legacy. How do you carry the torch, you know, passing on the torch of their life and still um, helping others and, and doing good in the world and, you know, kind of that's to me, that's honoring them. It's not about kind of they're, oh, they're buried and they're tucked away and that chapter's over and that story is closed. 
yeah, how, how can you honor them? How can you keep it going? How can you, you know, getting a diamond and keeping it with you so they're always there, um, I think is really beautiful. And they're always, you know, it's always a reminder. Yeah, I think it's just trying to have a... Letting their impact live through you yeah, and how you live. Yeah, and you're yeah. The, you're kind of the spokesperson for them. Yeah. And just how can you keep them alive in your heart, in your mind? And, you know, it's been amazing... When I started talking about it on social media, I just kind of was just doing it because I just needed to get things out of my head. And But it's amazing the impact that it's had on other people. I mean, people have messaged me who were suicidal and were thinking about committing suicide, not because they had lost somebody, but just their own you know struggles. And I had two people that reached out and basically said that uh, they are not going to do it because of Florian, because... Mm-hmm watching the way he was so brave to live his life and realizing the beauty of life and that they're just not going to do that. And I mean, that's powerful. Yeah. And so um, so I think also talking about it, you're helping other people. And And you may not even know who you're helping. Exactly. You may not know who you're helping in the moment or ever. That's right. Um, I mean, this is our shared human experience, this experience of grief. It's the thing that connects us all. And if we can... The reason I do this show, the reason I do the work at Reimagining Grief is that if we can be better practiced at sharing these stories and sharing these experiences, I think we're going to break down a lot of the disconnection and the isolation that we're experiencing because we're going to see ourselves reflected in each other's story. For sure, yeah. yeah. And, and and that's the power also of social media, right? I right. mean, you can, I mean, for me, joining the bile duct cancer Facebook group, right? Like right. that was so helpful because we connected with somebody that helped guide us through this way. So I think also just seeking out resources and um, they're out there. And not and, being afraid to be vulnerable and to connect with others who are, who are along the yeah, journey. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Getting support and not going it alone. Yeah. Renee, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really, really appreciate thank it. Thank you. It was, uh, it's it's hard. It's hard to kind of, you know, I, I'm a year forward and it's hard to kind of go back and look um, and kind of revisit some of those details and some of those memories. But I know that uh, it's helping others. And so that's why I do it. But also it's it's always good to reflect and making sure that I don't forget a lot of those moments because um, as painful as they were, there were a lot of really special moments. They're part and of the memories of your lives yeah, together. Yeah, and this is this is my journey, and I and I never want to forget all that I went through to get here. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Lisa. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Didn't I tell y'all this woman is a go-getter, an adventurer? And yet, it doesn't seem to me she is running from the pain. She is simply carrying on so many of the traditions that she and Florian shared. One of the many ways she is carrying his memory forward into the future. Still, I appreciated her honesty and openness about some of the things she's had to change and how those changes have turned out to be a good thing especially in terms of how she runs her business, Renee Rouleau Skincare. Next up on this series is a fascinating conversation I had with a fantastic and creative artist here in Austin, Texas. Though Chrissy Tegerstrom is a podcast host herself, 
of the show Beyond and Back podcast. She let me turn the tables, or the microphone as it were, and allowed herself to be interviewed by me. She opens up about how she has carried the loss of her father at age 11 in her body and the work she is doing to process that trauma and loss. I also recently sat down for another fascinating interview with international documentary short filmmakers who created a film called We the Bereaved. It is a powerful meditation on grief. You can find the link to the film in my show notes. Check it out and then don't forget to tune in to their episode, which will air in February. Before we go today, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a collection of empathy cards I'm really proud of. They're available now at reimagininggrief.com forward slash empathy. Ultimately, these cards came about out of my own frustration with the ones I received after my husband Eric died in my arms in 2011. While you can read the full story on my site, what I want you to know today is this. As a social worker, trained narrative therapist, and a widow, language matters, and not showing up for someone in their grief just isn't an option. So I wrote each of these messages based on my own understanding of what is needed by someone in one of the darkest times of their lives. That means none of these cards try to convince them that things are going to be okay or that they should hurry up and move on. Instead, these words are meant to assure the bereaved that they are seen and held exactly as they are in their grief journey. And they're also meant to give you, the person who wants to show up for someone in their grief, the tools you need to show up and keep showing up. This is Lisa Kiefoffer, creator and host of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. Thank you.